You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. And we're looking at 18 through 23. You'll find this on page 927 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 18 and verses 18 through 23. Hear the word of God. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Well, the many days that Paul spent in Corinth, according to verse 18, was actually one and a half years. The apostle then went to Syria, where he visited the Antioch church. And this was the congregation, you'll remember, that originally sent him on his missionary journeys. He went with Priscilla and Aquila as traveling companions and co-workers. They set sail from the Corinthian port at Centria for the region of Syria. And before leaving, the Bible says he cut his hair, which he had let grow for religious reasons. Perhaps it was similar to a Nazarite vow, we're not told, but it was some formal consecration to God. And it shows at least that in his evangelism, he remained a loyal Jewish Christian. By that I mean he was willing to live as a Jew so that he could win Jews. And his journey took him to Ephesus, the greatest commercial city in ancient Asia Minor. And it was to be a brief stopover, but he found time to reason with the Jews, which is not surprising. Apparently, his ministry was well received and he was invited to remain in Ephesus And because here the gospel was welcomed with interest, if not saving faith, they wanted to hear what he had to say. But he declined, surprisingly, promising to return at a later date if God wills. Whatever it was he had to do, it must have been important to pass up an opportunity like this. It seemed like Ephesus was ripe. They invited him to stay. It was an opportunity to preach, but a previous commitment must be kept. And he hoped that he could return, and most likely he wished to be in Jerusalem for the Passover, so he needed to set sail. 
And we find later on that he made good on his promise because God did will his return. In Ephesus, he was able to minister extensively for an extended period of time. But for now, he returned home to fulfill his obligations and to see his brethren. When his ship landed at Caesarea, he greeted the church at Jerusalem and then went to Antioch. And with this, Luke wraps up his report of Paul's second missionary journey. He then transitions into the apostles' third journey, you'll notice, which begins at verse 23. And Paul retraces his steps, going back through Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. And that was his aim. His aim was to strengthen the believers and the churches along the way. And first, I think it implies that the disciples in Ephesus were in need of strengthening. The situation was precarious after all. I think their faith might have been somewhat fragile, their hope very delicate. Secondly, Paul did this, I think, by reinforcing the ministry of the gospel. Surely he must have reminded them of their status and condition in the Lord Jesus Christ. Reconciliation with God in Christ is the keynote of the Christian faith. And in the time remaining, I want us to consider what it means to be spiritually strengthened. What does that mean? You may have heard that phrase before, but what actually does it consist of? Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand the nature of the Christian strength. There are many things that go into it, but primarily, as we heard the children say this morning, it's produced by the joy of the Spirit. Isn't that what we read in Nehemiah chapter 8? Nehemiah said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is not the world's joy over the increase of its grain and new wine. Such gifts of God's providence are given to everybody without distinction. No, the joy of the Lord is a spiritual joy. It's also called the joy of salvation. The Holy Spirit bears witness with the word of God in our hearts to produce joy. He implants faith in the soul and he enables us to rejoice in God's promise. That's the joy of the Lord. And it's a joy in God's favor and fatherly care. It's a joy in his eternal love for his children. Sadly, and I have to be honest with you, the unbeliever in this world has no share in God's fatherly care. We hear some people talk about the fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. As if anybody could be a child of God without trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures make it clear that we are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2. For as Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews, you are of your father the devil. So we are by nature coming from the womb, alienated from God, estranged from heaven, and strangers to the covenant of promise. We all know this to be a disagreeable truth to the vast majority of mankind. They don't want to hear things like that. Infants are cute and cuddly and seemingly innocent. 
But as Bruce Cooley reminded me last week, they are vipers and diapers. <laughs> the psalmist says in Psalm 58, the wicked are estranged from the womb and they go astray from birth. When he says the wicked, he's referring to everybody who's outside of Christ. My friends, don't make the mistake of listening to the world's take on it. Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. And God knows you and I far better than we know ourselves. And he says that all mankind is sinful. Have you ever lied? I don't care how old you were. Have you ever lied? Have you ever taken something? Have you ever hated somebody for doing something wrong? Have you ever harbored lust? These things flow from a sinful heart and they're the fruits of corruption and some wrongly think that the mere passage of time can wipe away the guilt of these kinds of sins. But if you've done them once, you're a liar, a thief, a murderer, an adulterer. And if you are outside of Christ, you have no share in God's fatherly care. Ephesians 2, you are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And my friend, that is not a myth or a fairy tale. It's the truth of God. And I may not be able to persuade you, but it's my job to inform you. In the words of Jesus, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But the believer, by contrast, is joined to Christ Jesus by trusting in him. And this comes about because of what theologians call effectual calling. Paul says to Timothy, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He made us alive together in Christ. And the guilt of sin is cleansed by the blood of Christ, and the dominion of sin is broken by the Spirit of Christ. And the believer, the sincere believer, experiences the joy of forgiveness and acceptance. That's why we sang, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. There's nothing else like that. To know that we're in right standing with the holy God. And that's true and lasting joy. And it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. Philip shared this gospel with the Ethiopian who went on his way rejoicing. And so once the joy of the Lord is begun, it can and must be further strengthened. You see, it's not enough to sow the seed, but it must be watered as well. And there needs to be this frequent strengthening to keep the fruit to be produced. The Apostle Paul returns to the churches. He wants to strengthen them. He seeks to increase their joy by proclaiming this gospel, which is the truth about Christ and his cross. Because in this world, he says, we encounter many tribulations. 
Just as Israel endured the trials in the wilderness on the way toward Canaan, so we endure trials in this world on our way to the heavenly Jerusalem. We pray for people every week who are afflicted. Trials. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. It sustains us amid these troubles. And such inward spiritual joy cannot be extinguished by mere external circumstances. And there are two gospel benefits that are most effective in increasing this joy. We're going to look at those two. Number one, the forgiveness of sins. It is one of the choicest mercies that you can receive from the hand of God. The forgiveness of sins. It's a privilege of the first rank. And there is perhaps no benefit that is sweeter. Acts 13, on his first missionary journey, Paul preached this in the synagogue. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. There is no redemptive benefit more desirable than the forgiveness of sins. I want you to think of a condemned criminal who's lying on that gurney about to have the needle stuck into his veins and to be executed for crimes that he's committed against the state. All of a sudden, the phone on the wall rings with the news that there is a full and a free pardon from the governor. Wouldn't he be thrilled? Wouldn't you? Overjoyed, all of your anxiety relieved. And of course, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul mentions the pardon as chief among blessings. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. All the guilt of sin is taken away. All the punishment of sin is fully exhausted. The slate is wiped clean and there is no condemnation and no judgment. And the sincere believer is at peace with God and his own conscience. And if it's true that you get what you pay for, then this is an inexpressible blessing. Because Peter tells us that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. And you and I both know that things of great value will cost a great deal. The quality usually equals the price. Not always, but usually. The quality usually equals the price. The price was infinite. Jesus died to secure this benefit. So this choice blessing, the forgiveness of sins, was obtained at a high price. Nothing less than the precious blood of the incarnate Son of God because nothing but his blood was precious enough to obtain this benefit. What's that song that we sing? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That blood is without spot. It is innocent and untainted by sin of any kind. And it was, according to the Apostle Paul, the very blood of God, Acts 20, verse 28. And we're told this morning that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
And ever since the fall of man, the shedding of blood has been connected with forgiveness. Countless. We cannot count the number of sacrificial lambs that were offered in Jerusalem that foreshadowed the lamb who was slain. And all those groaning and bleeding and dying victims were simply types of the Lord Jesus himself. And then he comes in the fullness of time and he dies on the cross once for all to put away sin for those who believe. And you know something? There is no doubt in my mind that Cain and Abel knew of this necessity in redemption. They knew it. Abel offered his own bleeding, dying victim as a type of the promised Messiah. And in so doing, Abel demonstrated his faith in God's promise and the efficacy of that blood. And then in Hebrews 11, it says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Why? Why was Abel's sacrifice more acceptable than Cain's? Well, one reason is because Cain offered a bloodless sacrifice. Genesis 4.3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. He could have purchased a lamb from his brother. He could have sacrificed a victim, but he offered a bloodless sacrifice. And of course, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So if you and I were to be forgiven, Jesus had to shed his precious blood. The justice of God required it and the guilt of sin demanded it. And that was the high price of our pardon. And it was the ransom that Jesus paid. He laid down his life an offering for sin that we might be forgiven. And so I ask this question, given all that's been said, was God willing to pay such an awful price and people spurn and reject it? Do you know what Hebrews 10 says? I'm sure you do. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Friend, if you have not sought forgiveness in Jesus Christ, then you're still in your sins. And if when you walk out of this building, you get hit by a car, you'll die in your sins. I don't like to be the bearer of bad news, but I will not shrink from the truth. It's the kindest thing that I can do to be straight up with you about the situation. Jesus said, and I quote, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's benefit number one, forgiveness. That strengthens the disciple. But number two, acceptance with God is of equal value as one of the benefits of redemption. Because you see, this is the necessary complement of forgiveness of sins. If sins are forgiven and we're not accepted, we're right back where we started. 
Adam was created innocent, but in the beginning, he wasn't confirmed. It was a probation, which if passed, he would have been confirmed and accepted, okay? If he failed, if he broke the covenant, then he would be alienated. Well, we both know what happened. He sinned, and mankind is alienated. So to be redeemed by Christ is to be both forgiven and accepted. If we had forgiveness but not acceptance, we'd be at square one. We'd be clear of guilt, but we'd be not confirmed in holiness. And our future would be in doubt. And we would not be members of God's house. We would have the acquittal from the judge, but no acceptance from the father. When the judge pronounced O.J. Simpson, some of you are not old enough to know who that is. But when the judge pronounced O.J. Simpson not guilty, the defendant was relieved. And justice had no claim on him. He was free to go. No punishment. But the judge had nothing more to do with him. They went their separate ways. Judge goes over here. O.J. goes over there. It was strictly a judicial relationship. The judge may have despised O.J. We don't know. But it's not so with God. If he forgives in Christ, he accepts in Christ. If you've ever been to an ordination service, you've seen an analogy of this. The candidate for the ministry is carefully examined on the floor of Presbytery. He's tested on his personal faith, godly character, family management. He's examined on his knowledge of the Bible, theology, history, government. And the Presbyteria votes on whether or not this man has passed his exams. And if he's approved, then the court rises and extends the right hand of fellowship with that man. Why? Because he's now one of us. He's a fellow presbyter. We accept him as one. He's received into our favor. God does the same way in Christ. He extends the right hand of fellowship with those whom he forgives. He receives us into his favor. He bestows on us the riches of his grace. And as Christians, we then enjoy the privilege of being called God's friends. Isn't that glorious? The believers are not just forgiven, but we're accepted. We all have this innate desire to be accepted by others, don't we? Again, you're going to accuse me of being old when I say this. But there was a TV show named Cheers. It had a theme song that apparently was the most popular theme song of all time. Where everybody knows your name. Every Christian is the forgiven friend of God, acceptable in his sight. The blood of Christ watches away his sin. We're clothed in his righteousness, and he knows our name. You're known, you belong, you're accepted. One of my heroes, John Flavel, puts it like this. Jesus leads us into the presence of the Most High God and says something to this effect. Father, here is a poor sinner who was born in sin, lived in rebellion, 
broke all of your laws and deserves the full extent of your wrath. Yet this is one whom you gave me before the foundation of the world. I have paid the price for his sins with my own blood. I have opened his eyes and renewed his heart and subdued his will and united him to myself by faith. Therefore, Father, I pray that you accept him and love him with the same love with which you love me. You see, the judge not only acquits, but the judge takes us home and gives us a room upstairs. So those are the two basic truths that God uses to strengthen the faith of his disciples. His spirit drives them home and gives them power in the life of a believer. Because you know something, the Christian's faith is that which the devil strives to shake most of all. If faith is safe, all is safe. Strengthen that and you strengthen all. And Satan wants to weaken your faith. He will accuse you when you sin. He will indict you for it and try to confuse you. And if he can lead you away from the forgiveness of sins and acceptance in Christ, then you're tempted to despair. But if you receive and rest upon Christ and have the joy of the Lord, you can be strong. As Richard Sibbs puts it, a little thing in the hand of a giant will do great matters. A little faith strengthened by Christ in his hand will work great wonders. The Ephesian converts were surrounded by enemies and they were relatively ignorant. And whatever else Paul said, I'm sure he told them about the forgiveness of sins and acceptance in the sight of God. May all of us here set our hope upon him because these truths are those that he uses to strengthen our faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, in whom we do have the forgiveness of sins and amazingly acceptance in your sight. We pray that you'll use these truths throughout this coming week to strengthen us, to encourage us, to give us the hope that one day we'll be with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.